civilization is being sacrificed for the opportunity of a very small number of people. We urgently need financial, political and social innovations that enable us to overcome this structural dependency on growth. We need to change the system. This isn't cleaning up the beaches in the case of plastic a little bit faster. That's vital, that has to be done. But you need to stem the flow. Gosimon explores sustainable change and the women inspiring it. Who are they? What made them who they are? How do they read the world they live in? Our guests share their story, roots, passions and hopes for the future. They tell us more about the alternatives and strategies they developed to tackle climate change. Hello! For this 16th episode of the year, 23rd episode of Gossimon, I'll read an extract of a poem, The Book of Time, by the winner of the Pulitzer Prize, Mary Oliver. I rose this morning early as usual and went to my desk. But it's spring and the thrush is in the woods, somewhere in the twirled branches. And he's singing. And so now I'm standing by the open door. And now I'm stepping down onto the grass. I'm touching a few leaves. I'm noticing the way the yellow butterflies move together in a twinkling cloud over the field. And I'm thinking, maybe just looking and listening is the real work. Maybe the word without us is the real poem. Our simon today is Liz Dingyin. Liz has a background in design, international development and law, and community building. She splits her time between several organizations she founded, the Experience Design Studio Identity Division, a community center in Cambodia, a social enterprise, Nowhere and Everywhere, where she advocates for climate change, biodiversity, systemic issues, waste and climate justice, and Scudo, a kids' environmental and social justice teaching platform. With Liz, we talked about nurturing creativity, the shift to new business models, eco-grief, friendships in time of climate crisis, the population debate, space mining, and the greenwashing of Amazon. Hi, Liz. Hi, lovely to meet you. Great to meet you. Thank you for accepting our interview at GoSimon. Oh, absolutely. I love your past episodes. So it's a bit of a ritual question to start our Gossimons episodes. Uh, I was wondering where you grew up. What was your childhood like? That's a good question. I'm originally from the Netherlands, um, so grew up there for the first uh, while of life. My childhood was really lovely. <laughs> I had a really amazing childhood. I had wonderful parents and an incredible mum who is also a childhood development behavioural specialist. So I was extremely lucky with that. We did a lot of art and craft when I was younger. I remember spending lots of time at home and we just lived very simply and easily. Yeah, I had a very, very free, liberal Dutch childhood. <laughs> How would you uh, describe your relationships with nature? strong now. I, when I was a child, I, on reflection, I certainly didn't think about it much really until really until I went to Africa in 2009 and walked with the gorillas for a while in Uganda and Rwanda. That's when I had a first, oh, there's, there's things going on in the world that I'm not connected to. So I spent a lot of time in nature as a child. We, we went on travel trips a lot being in Europe and Australia and we hiked a lot and we spent time outdoors and at the ocean. But I never really put myself in a relationship with nature. I didn't grow up like that. I didn't, you know, when we listen to Indigenous people speak about how they contribute back to ecosystems, I certainly never thought of it that way. I just really, on reflection of my life, just always took from the world. 
Um, so it wasn't until I was much older that I built a relationship with the environment. How did you become aware of global warming, but also, uh, you know, the threat on biodiversity and yeah. uh, the six mass extinction as we hear about it now? Yes. How did you become aware of that and the need to act with urgency to mitigate this uh, situation? Yeah, I should have become aware of it much earlier because my mum in the 70s was involved in environmentalism. For whatever reason, I didn't connect those two together. And I certainly didn't learn about this at school. So my exploration of it really started when I began extensively traveling the world on my own and would see nature disappear. And particularly when I went back to places that I'd been to before to see forests disappear, to see I'm a keen photographer. So to see animals that I used to photograph no longer exist. That was really my big indicator of there is something really big going on and I need to start looking into this. So I used to work in rural Cambodia as well in childhood education and poverty reduction. And it was in that space that I started noticing the environment around us change and the impact that climate change was having on our weather patterns, particularly in terms of the agricultural crops and how it was affecting the families living there. So that's when I decided to dig down deeper into that. And the last seven years have been a major learning curve of what is happening in that space. So you are um, a serial organization founder, <laughs> I've discovered yes. through your link. <laughs> Uh, so you lead uh, Identity Division, an yeah. experience design studio, uh, Scoodle, a children educational uh, platform, yeah. community center in Cambodia, nowhere and everywhere, an environment hub. Yeah. So first question for you, what's your secret? <laughs> Project management <laughs> and getting out of everyone's way <laughs> just so they can do their job. <laughs> How do you feed your creativity? How do you source your inspiration, your ideas? How do you proceed? Yeah, that's a good question. Looking at other industries. So I find looking at our own industries is just too too internal and doesn't really feed that creativity. A lot of my creativity comes from obviously travel and seeing the adventures of other people, but also through learning about the women in history that we just had no idea about. Well, I certainly didn't. And the amazing things they did looking at industries such as architecture and how they do things, looking at other cultures. I find that one of the most useful ways of thinking about the world is knowing that everywhere in the world, somewhere is someone is doing it right, or the way that we can learn from. So looking at how they do things and the practices they have. So with uh, your uh, one of your organisations, Nowhere and Everywhere, which is a kind of hybrid platform really uh, yeah. proposing both education, consulting services, workshops for people and organizations to make positive impact on global challenges. Could you tell us more about this social enterprise and what you're uh, trying to achieve? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> um, we're still trying to work that out at the moment, actually. So it's been about two years now of that one. Our work in Cambodia is pretty clear. So where we are in rural Cambodia, we've built a little center. And what we really want to do there is train up community champions so they can go into their communities. Um, and they have a really you know, decently paid job. They have good work and they can help with agriculture, with crop projects, with talking about climate change, deforestation, plastic waste, which are all really big issues where we are. And then it's also about employing other people in our centre just in a way because we're so rural and we have just such a lack of opportunity there. So we're trying to figure out a few different things there and throwing a bit of spaghetti against the wall to see what works because we are so far away from things. So it's hard to access as well. In terms of the strategy for the wider community and what we think globally, we've got four focus points, which is around getting people to participate in their community and the government, getting people to change the way we work. So really trying to do advocacy for how we work and how we choose to work um, for those of us who are privileged enough to be able to. 
um, shifting the economic system. So that comes from a lot of legislative change that we need, but we need people pressure to actually be able to change that and the education to know what's available and what we can move to. And then adjusting how we live. So that's more lifestyle based and the decisions that we are all individually making. Longer term strategy, not sure yet how we can make that happen, but that's our focus. How big is your team? Very small. So we've got four to eight people that are working on it constantly. There's lots of volunteers in Australia as well. Um, In Cambodia, everyone's paid and salaried and and working on it that way. Um, But we do rely on some uh, volunteer work here to Mm -hmm. help us out. So with these challenges being more and more in our face, uh, so to speak, have you noticed an increased interest in your services, especially the services for businesses on how they can switch gear and actually uh, tackle climate change and biodiversity issues in changing business models, etc.? Yeah, I just don't think we're addressing business models at all. And mm. I don't think most businesses are willing to address their business models. And it is extremely difficult because when we keep our economic system the way we are keeping it in hypercapitalism and neoliberalism, really how we actually change business models within that to still meet all of the profit making that we need to in this system and the growth on growth is very difficult and overwhelming for most businesses so we're not really addressing that what i am noticing an interest in is talking about this more so talking about systemic change i have done significantly more talks this year around design so how we are how we have chosen to design our world has created enormous amounts of waste and stereotyped issues and the perpetuation of a system of poverty those kind of things so there's been far more interest in how we can change that which is really good so there is the realization that something yeah. is wrong but actually putting on the solutions to to respond to the problem is yeah. still not yeah. and what are the the roadblocks from from the the businesses you're talking to what what are the primary uh, reasons why they would not uh, try to shift i think it is because we are just stuck in that system still so they are beholden a lot of businesses are beholden to shareholders a lot of businesses know they have to do certain things to appease their newer younger audience perhaps even to be able to recruit the best talent but they are only willing still at large to do the top 10% the kind of topsoil level of change rather than digging down deeper and looking at how are we delivering services how are we making products should this product even exist should we be changing the consumption patterns of our customers they're much harder questions so it's quite easy to say well we've made our office renewable on run on renewable energy or you know we've replaced some plastic with some plant packaging great but you actually haven't addressed your core business Mm -hmm. and there are so many roadblocks to that that yeah we're not overcoming as a society even is there a project or some projects that you are that you are particularly proud of despite all those uh, roadblocks i mean we work from a systemic point of view and i like to look at things uh, from a systems point of view so in that view then everything has so far not lived up to the systems change that you would like to see I think some of the workshops perhaps that we've run in terms of talking to designers about how they are going about choosing their clients, how they are choosing to design for a business, the jobs they do and do ta- don't take on, that has been somewhat successful if we count success that way. But largely, I'm going to say that no. <laughs> You, you have a motto that I saw on your one of your website, I can't remember which one, uh, which was saying, we are not solving problems anymore, we are crafting better ones. Yes. Can you explain the phrase? Yes, I think because I have a design background as well that we get taught a lot that we are, exist to solve problems. So you go into a business or you are working with a business and you are there to solve a problem. We aren't, we're creating new ones and we need to create better ones. So I think we're constantly having to make trade-offs that we're pro- probably not recognising. A very easy example of that is renewable energy for example we of course need to go to renewable energy that's very obvious but renewable energy also creates problems you know whose land are we building these solar and wind farms on 
Are we sharing the profits publicly or privatising them? Are we lithium mining, in which case we are just destroying another ecosystem and a lot of lithium mining's in Chile where we have, you know, um, labour that's probably not of the quality we want um, in terms of their work life. We are not solving problems deeply. We are just having to choose which problems are more just, which problems create some more equity in some places and make the trade-off between ecosystems, which is such a horrible thing to think about. Palm oil is another good example of that one. For example, we're not going to solve the palm oil issue if we just replace it with another. What we're choosing to do is how can we make the system a little bit better and which place is it better to destroy some things and which place can we up human rights in other areas. You've mentioned it uh, like the system we are in, which is capitalism, colonialism, patriarchy, yeah. or the, the roots of, of the problem of, the, of climate change, of the collapse of biodiversity. According to some uh, system thinkers, the, one of the earliest thinkers on that matter was the writer of Limits to Growth. We are not changing gears. We, are, we seem to head to uh, the collapse of, yeah. of the world as we know it. Do you think we are collectively capable of drastic system change? I'm not sure. I, I go about this in my head quite a bit. If I look at other drastic, the most drastic examples I can think of in the world in a space where it also had to do with consumption patterns, then I can look at smoking, for example. And we have drastically changed our relationship with smoking and how we view cigarettes and our human behaviour and of our government policies and our local community policies. So we've somehow managed to do all of those things in one, which is what we are going to need to do, plus the addition of addressing poverty and gender inequality and racism. So it is a bigger thing that we're addressing, but the fact that we have done it before on a smaller scale using the top-down and bottom-up approach is, is hopeful. Do I think with a planet of 7 to 10 billion people that we are going to make the change quick enough in the way we're going, particularly with a focus on the fact that there are very influential groups that believe technology will save us, then I'm not yet convinced. We know that digital space has a big uh, carbon f- footprint <laughs> and the more we progress, the bigger that footprint is. Yeah. Uh, you've just mentioned, you know, the belief that technology at some point will come at the rescue. What's your views on that, on how we can leverage from, for example, the digital power like social media, etc.? Yeah. Is it a force? Is it, on the contrary, around something that we feel is beneficial, but at the end of the day, the CO2 emissions just keep increasing? Yeah, I think uh, the future will tell us whether it (laughs) balanced which way or not. But there's obviously a component of it that is a force for good. If you look at the activism, particularly from young people around the world, um, I'm that's incredible the fact that they're on these platforms and taking all these actions and able to self-organize in communities that you know has been much more difficult um, before and this is the platform that we've raised them on so brilliant there are obvious downsides to it particularly around the fact that we no longer believe in facts which is a major disinformation problem that I'm not really sure how we're going to get around at this point and I do see that as you know a big problem going forwards. The actual sector itself, I, I always have a bit of a giggle that aviation gets shamed so much at 2.5% of emissions, but the internet and technology is also around 2%. So mm-hmm. it's very similar. It's just that we feel we need one in our lives and not the other, which is fair. But the sector does need major reform in that sense. And it's very easy to put your server plant on renewable energies, for example, even though some companies still haven't done that. But it is much more difficult to look at where your hardware components are coming from and how you're mining in the Congo and the 
labour there and what you're doing to the environment and the biodiversity in the Congo. So we need technology companies to look at the more difficult components. We need consumers to understand, us humans, to understand the good parts and the not so good. Again, how we're actually going to reform that without collectively talking about this and the policies that we should put in place. I'm not sure. My keyword of the day seems to be I don't know. (laughs) I find it interesting how on uh, Nowhere and Everywhere you are combining both the individual changes that we can make and the systemic changes at the same time and how to influence both. Which one did you start with? How did you enter the matter? Was it through your individual impact or was it through your straightaway thinking systemic impact, etc.? So this is one of the area I'm extremely passionate about because we seem to have moved in in far left groups we seem to have moved to we just need systems change and nothing else and we can only do systems change there's no point for individual change and I really don't think that's the place that we need to be because hundreds of millions of people are making choices every day that are accessible to them that are choices that affect other human lives and families and children and our environment and they can change so there is a balance in that because we are part of the system we are putting demands on the system we're we're making choices in the system So my own entry, I think like most others, came through individual change. Because of the way I grew up, we were always I was always quite minimalistic. So that part was fairly easy for me. It was the changing how I eat, changing the clothes I wear, those kind of things. I think you come in through that and then realize that there's bigger problems. There's some argument actually to those changes not being the gateway that we think they are or the spillover that that we think they are. So when we started Nowhere and Everywhere, it was with the belief that if you get people started at individual change, you can bring them right through to social justice. I don't think that's borne out. Mm -hmm. I think there's a sub-segment of that population that will come through to that, whether they would have come through on their own anyway, given no other interventions, I probably believe that they would have. So I'm not sure about this gateway, you know, spillover effect that we talk about a lot, but I do think that for the moment, given that we have no other clear options on that, that starting in an individual place when you have access to other options is a great place to start and then moving towards the fact that we need both bottom up and top down. Uh, some researchers are thinking about capitalism and more so what's next, what's yeah. after, what's coming after capitalism. If we if we get rid of that system, what do we create? Kate Rowers, the author of Donut Economics, explains that uh, today we have economies that need to grow whether or not they make us thrive and what we need are economics that make us thrive whether or not they grow. In the, the new schools of thoughts, whether it is uh, degrowth, post-growth, solidarity economy, is there a concept out there, an imaginary, like a new imaginary, that resonates with you? I've been studying the new economic solutions that we've got out there for the last six months to try and understand the landscape of what's out there. So there's about 25 to 30 I've found that are more prominent. And I think we need a mix of them. So I, I think there's there's obviously people that focus exclusively on circular economy or on donut economics and I think that's fantastic but I think we're going to need quite a few of them to cover our move away from GDP and hypercapitalism. There's benefits to some of them and I would really like, and this is very dream thinking, but collective conversations around what we actually choose to move toward. And I love the word thrive because currently in our world there are millions of people who are not thriving, they are living with poverty and not able to even move into you know, a middle income bracket which is only 7 to $12 per day. And then there's hundreds of millions of us who have so much privilege and access and wealth who are also not thriving. So I love that word and I love that concept. And there's parts of all economics between the sharing economy, between donor economics, even butterfly economics, those kind of things that we can take from. 
What are your thoughts on civil disobedience movement we are seeing emerging? We are seeing, obviously, Extinction Rebellion, this type of things. We've seen recently as well the emergence of some grassroots movement. I'm thinking of La Ronce. I don't know if you've heard of it in France, for example. It's a new green movement. They appeared, uh, they emerged early October, and uh, they denounced the inaction of leaders on uh, environmental matters. For example, they encourage corking a package of sugar which is coming from fields cultivated uh, with nicotinoids uh, which is a neuroactive insecticide uh, they uh, encourage uh, to put a felty pen on the QR code of gig economy scooters to put glue in the credit card reader of uh, gas station uh, to deflate uh, SUV tires so they describe it as small simple gestures low risk decentralized and simultaneous and that's how they intend to act to shake uh, the status quo what are your thoughts on on these actions so civil disobedience as a general uh, concept and do you think activist uh, radicality work I think history has shown us that civil disobedience works um, when we look at big events and I think it's needed I'm not sure about those small specific changes I would have to wait to see how they played out how I am as a person is always uncomfortable with those things because I just wasn't like that I'm just not put together that way and yet I've also really encouraged myself to be part of Extinction Rebellion in the last year at least to go to the protests and make sure that your voice is heard I think there's some real power in collectively showing politicians in particular and huge conglomerates that there is a group of people here that are not happy with how things are and that you do need to change I think there's also a lot of the the root of the problem is frustration that there there is such a lack of action in the top and how we as citizens are going to be able to show that is very limited in a society that does box you in and does limit you and does have very specific laws all the time about what you can and can't do then it's very difficult to show other than at the voting box that we're not happy with the way things are and this can't go on this can't go on for for us it can't go on for the people who are currently living with the consequences of our actions it can't go on for the politicians children for future children and so civil disobedience in that way works and it also brings light to situations that other people may not have been exposed to otherwise. Is there a personal change you recommend or you know is actually needed but that you still struggle to commit to? I really struggle with the political thing. Even just in that conversation on civil disobedience that I've had lots of conversations with friends about it this year and particularly friends of colour, friends from different backgrounds around what non-violent civil disobedience means and the fact that what's happening particularly to people of colour and people who are experiencing racism in intersection with environmentalism as well is violent. And so what is the right answer to that? So I've had lots of conversations about that and I do find that still difficult to know what exactly to do. I also find that my constant encouragement to get involved with your politics wherever you are located in Cambodia where I live a lot of the time that's not possible for me because of the way the system's set up but even here for example in Australia I find that very hard because of how uninspiring the politics is and because it's a two-party really political system the way I found to overcome that is to get involved in your own local politics so in your community politics this year was the first time I really got involved in you know my ward here my electoral ward and that was both inspiring and despondent at times depending on what day it was I very much understand the difficulties of that And even though that I'm constantly a proponent for always get involved in that system, it takes a lot of my own energy and work to make sure that I'm doing the thing that I say. So tomorrow you had power, um, no roadblocks whatsoever, and you could make one policy change. What would you do? I would make three. (laughs) (laughs) Changing the rules straight away. (laughs) The Dutch in me. (laughs) 
I would make a policy change to address corruption. I think without addressing corruption, uh, we are never going to get these things over the line. So I did really like Elizabeth Warren in America this year, whose big thing was about corruption. I very much agree with that. I also had a, a fun few things in the last few years come up. California, for example, put a proposition forward, I believe, a, a while ago that said that their politicians would have to wear logos of people who sponsored them and companies that sponsored them, like sports people. It didn't succeed, but the concept of that just as a starting point yeah. <laughs> would be interesting. The other one, obviously, would be to make targets binding. So the fact that the Paris Agreement and the Aichi targets for biodiversity aren't binding is not useful in any way. And then policies that address inequality, particularly inequality in race, in sexism and in wealth. So talking about uh, sexism via Squoodle, so you're, uh, so it's a mix of a, of a shop, educational platform, yeah. really. You make a point to contribute and fight gender stereotypes through toys. Did you experience sexism yourself? Yes. <laughs> I think um, nearly everyone does, don't they, really, if you're a woman? It never really occurred to me again until I first entered the corporate world. So I entered the corporate world at 17. And, oh, my God, if I could go back and change things in my life, it would be that period because I didn't know about this. I am sure that I was also internalizing sexism at that mm -hmm. age, that I was making sexist jokes, that I was saying things, you know, to other women that I would never think or say now. So definitely that was my first experience of it. And then moving through the work world and then having worked in technology for a long time and, and I was also a developer for a really long time where you are one of only a few women. It, it's pretty constant. Yeah. Ecofeminism. So is a field of uh, economics and social studies. It's looking at the links between the destruction of nature and the patriarchal society. Is it something that resonates with you? Yes. I think also because climate change and environmentalism is inherently sexist. Climate change impacts or the climate crisis impacts women more than it does men. Environmentalism is seen as feminine, according to quite a few studies. Even recycling is seen as feminine. I think the burden falls on women a lot. So if you look at your household buying choices, who cooks, those choices then end up on a woman more often than not. If you look at Project Drawdown's list of solutions, then educating women and access to family planning for women is one of the top solutions. I think there's no way to separate them. And it's not something that we uh, hear very much. It always no. comes at a cherry on the cake or uh, something. Oh, yeah, we need to think about that <laughs> as well. But first, you know, renewable solar. Uh... It's really interesting, that, isn't it? That it really lost steam after the 70s. Absolutely. Like many waves of feminism yeah. since then. Yeah. And I think it's quite difficult to talk about now because everything's become so politically, you know, intense. Mm. And we consider nearly everything political now. So mm. rather than saying that's a social thing or that's a human rights, everything has become political. So then it has made a situation where it's difficult to talk about things in a way that's nuanced, unemotional. Yeah. We seem to also face a backlash, some sort of a backlash Massively. after the push like Poland and yeah. like a kind of a return to the dark age of absolutely no rights or yep. things being taken away. So Yeah, I actually couldn't watch The Handmaid's Tale because of oh. that. <laughs> I was one episode in and thought this is too too close. <laughs> I can't watch this. <laughs> it is close, yes, indeed. It, it's a very good one, though, a bit, very good show. It's sad because my mum was an activist in the 70s and I think about all of the work she put in and all the work her colleagues put in and the women around the world and Indigenous women and, you know, women from everywhere. And then I think about how it must be now to be in your 60s and 70s and 80s if you were part of that movement and to watch some of it actually take significant steps backward and that pains me a lot. Why do you think is it the same type of apathy that might happen to people on climate change like a form of denial like although they are they are acknowledging that it exists they yeah. still don't act so which is a form of denial in itself yeah. now. I think it might also be exhaustion just yeah, we, oh, yeah. we live in a system where yeah. we have no time absolutely you know, everyone is working non-stop we, we are having to spin our wheels to pay for rent and you know mortgages if you're 
yes. able to have fun and cars yeah. and kids and schools and food and yeah. at what amount of time in your day do you have to spend on thinking about sexism and the climate crisis and biodiversity loss and poverty reduction while you also have to save the animals you know? absolutely yeah, yeah. It, it could be seen as a strategy to keep us so busy yes. that uh, we don't have the time to to fight for our most basic rights I think that's actually probably a worry of the, the movement to work four days a week or less time per week. I'm a massive advocate mm. of. I think it's really important. Mm. Um, but that would be on the minds of people that you, we would have more time to be politically active. Mm-hmm. We would have more time to engage in community politics and what's happening in our country, and to volunteer more, to care more, to have more empathy. Empathy leads to human rights, which mm. leads to policies that change that. Capitalism relies on the exploitation of people. Mm. Powers in place very well know that yes. and they make sure yes. <laughs> they make sure we can. <laughs> In the current climate, how do you keep your motivation going to fight? How do you deal with those moments? You probably have those moments where you're a bit down. How do you keep being hopeful for the future? I wouldn't say I'm hopeful for the future. Um, I, I have a really complicated relationship with hope. I, I don't think you need hope to simultaneously do the work. So if I look at the data and I look at the systems, and I look at the signals in particular in a system and rather the signals we're not seeing, then I'm not, not shown hope for the future, which is also why I chose not to have biological children. That doesn't mean you can't do the work anyway and you can't be positive about doing the work. And my perspective on that is that I would, if I have any hope, it is the hope to reduce a little bit of suffering. So if we all did that, perhaps we would actually get somewhere. I don't find it hard to get up every day and do that the only bit that I really do find difficult to deal with is eco grief really is watching environments be destroyed and what I find particularly hard when I live in countries like Australia is I love my friends but I have quite privileged friends who make privileged decisions and I know that the outcome of those decisions is that families are living in poverty and that they are engaged in labour practices in order for us to have things. Um, I know that children are dying. I know that when I work in rural Cambodia that we have major issues with starvation again and drought and lack of water and we have no electricity and I know that collectively that's because of the decisions that we are making and it's not just us, it's companies and governments but we are part of it. So I find that part the real struggle and some days I really struggle and muddle through that of my own feelings and I'm not really sure what to do with them. You mentioned your circle of friends which yeah. are not necessarily um, in line between their maybe their values and their acts. Yeah. How do you reconcile this? Is it something you, you struggle with keeping those friendships? Yes, I talk about this a lot with people because I think we are taught to always stay friends with the people <laughs> we were friends with, which is really difficult. I think also if you're on the left, you are consistently being told to always reach out to the other side which is great. We should always be talking to you know not just the other side but all people of all um, perspectives and hearing commentary and, and what they think and I think it's really important to do that it's also exhausting if after 15 years you're still hearing the same things I have decided for myself that there is only so much time and energy I can invest into certain areas so there are very basic fundamentals I believe that you need to be in order for us to be in our lives together so racism is one of them sexism was never one of them I always thought I could maybe talk people around somehow to not being sexist anymore I've realized over the last decade that that's just not possible with all people that people are just inherently sexist um, and no amount of education gets them there and maybe something has to happen in their life but I certainly wasn't having that impact so I've decided that that's one of them for me the environmental one is much more difficult much more nuanced because like you say people have values but then they don't act on them 
the particular struggle is when those people also choose to have children and I think you do have access to the choices to make the future better for your children and you are relying on other people to do that for you and you're relying on your privilege that you will be protected from the consequences of our actions that I'm still muddling my way through. So in the environmentalist uh, movement there's uh, proponents of people like you making the choice of not having children. Other progressives say it is actually not the problem. The problem is those 1% of affluent people yeah. who are actually uh, creating that system which yeah. is extremely destructive for the for the planet and certainly not a population issue. Can you explain a bit more yeah. what were your motivations in making that choice? I mine were very much twofold so both the environmental side that I just couldn't see I, cu I couldn't with a full heart have a biological child and say I've I've put you in a place in the world that I think is fixable. So I think there's always been issues in history. You know, we've we've had a long history of issues, but I think a lot of them people have had agency over in order to influence and fix. Whereas I think the children we are deciding to put into the world now, if you have access to make that decision, are going to live with a number of the consequences that we can't resolve. So there are climate feedback loops that are kicking in. There are biodiversity loops there that we are going to have to face and they will face regardless. So that was one of them. And then the other one was human rights. So because I've worked a long time in places where there are multiple children and families that don't have parents um, and there are millions of children in that situation, I didn't see it as impactful for myself to have one biological child and spend all of my resources and time on that child rather than being able to share my resources across a village and ensuring that people who are currently already living have access to more opportunity. I felt that was a better way to spend my resources. The population debate itself lacks nuance. I think anyone who looks at it with a clear eye can understand that 7 to 10 billion people place a major demand on our natural resources and that that's not going away anytime soon. We're not going to spring up technological labs for every piece of material and resource we currently get from the ground, the trees, the ocean. Logically, I think we can all get there, that 10 billion people is going to have a big impact on our environment. I think we shouldn't be on the side that says we just need to not have babies at all. That's not a thing. Yes. Um, and obviously we want to keep the human population going. Mm. Do all of us have to have children? I, mm. you know, I think evolution probably shows that not all of us have to have children. And I certainly agree with the argument that we should look at consumption first, that, my goodness, most of our consumption is in industrialised countries and China, so let's address that first. And let's mm. provide people with proper access to family planning before yes, we absolutely. talk about population yeah. in those yeah. areas. And it will solve the actual yes. population <laughs> yes. problem as well. Yeah. And addressing the issue of, you know, access for the girls to yeah. education, etc. Absolutely. Et yeah. And that feedback loop will be positive. I think that's the way they frame it. Like those um, people saying population should be addressed, etc. Better traction if they were promoting first and foremost education for girls. Yes, absolutely. It's just hard these days with sound bites and that we just lack nuance in conversations yes. constantly. Yeah. Yeah. And people aren't interested in listening to yeah. you know the actual deeper detail. But absolutely, first and foremost, education, family planning and consumption mm. in wealthy countries. And then let's talk about population. I shared with you uh, two articles articles from the press and was wondering if you could comment those. The first I shared was published in Vox titled The Future of Commercial Space Travel is Almost Here with the Latest SpaceX Launch. Comments on, on that, I will just say a few words on the article it explores. So several uh, dimensions. First, the, the privatization of uh, space conquest, the American desperate attempt to remain the empire uh, <laughs> it's, it's built, and the perspectives of commercial flights for humans 
plans to travel in space to do what we're not <laughs> sure. But I was interested to know uh, what your thoughts were about that whole space <laughs> adventure. It makes me want to bang my head against the door. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just cannot believe that we are not post-colonialism on our current planet and we are going to start colonizing other planets. I just... <laughs> I cannot think about it that much. You know, obviously, other than the fact that the public has paid and subsidised for much of our space exploration and then we're privatising the profits, but also space mining is becoming more and more mm. talked about. And I, I'm not going to get over this for a while, but I think even iSpace, which is a company that's booked a flight on Elon Musk's company, you know, is looking at mining minerals on the moon. No, let's let's mm. please not do that. Yeah. <laughs> Just to send a few wealthy individuals around the planet. <laughs> How do you explain that people are still in WOW? of such projects. They will stay up at night just to look the launch of that uh, yeah. of that rocket. And I mean, it is amazing, isn't it? Like it, it, mm. to be to be fair, like it's incredible. It's incredible feat of humanity. It brought humanity somewhat in some countries together. You know, when we landed on the moon, it is an enormous feat. But I think then, if we can look at that and think that's look, holy moly, look at what we've done. Then could we not spend that time and energy and money and the brains that are working towards those projects then on tackling the climate crisis and poverty and the biodiversity loss that we're experiencing and look at that collectively and say wow look at what we've done fascinating isn't it the, it is, the it dissonance is we have there yeah. yeah the second article was published in vice and was uh, called the secret amazon reports expose the company's surveillance of labor and environmental groups so amazon has been really under the spotlight uh, recently with uh, black friday some initiatives around that uh, jeff bezos has uh, doubled his fortune over the course of the pandemic he is spying on workers he is impeaching them to organize in unions he's and environmental activists, we know that these activities are extremely damaging for the environment. How can we hold those tech giants accountable? Yes. <laughs> this doesn't it surprise me at all that Amazon is doing this. Maybe if I could go back to the policy question, we should talk about billionaires first. <laughs> yes. Um, because there is no way you can possibly become a billionaire without exploiting people and the planet or that you've inherited your wealth from people who exploit the people or the planet. So it doesn't exist. There's no, there's no such thing as an ethical billionaire and a sustainable one. So it just shouldn't exist. There should be policies that stop this. And I know that there's people that argue, well, he's giving, you know, whatever amount, 7% of his salary to a, a climate fund now. I mean, that's such a small percentage of his fund, but it goes back to the business model again that, mm. you know, that, that effectively is greenwashing Amazon because he can get away with his business model without ever having to talk about it and make the difficult decisions in order to just put money in some place, which is, you know, some of it will likely go towards geoengineering and those kind of exploration projects. Mm. So, oh, yeah, <laughs> he does my head in. <laughs> it is scary, yes. To conclude, would you have a cultural uh, reference, a, a book, a film, something you, you've come across recently that uh, really inspired you and that you'd like to recommend to yeah, our I, listeners? I, I wrote a few down, actually, on this one. So one of the books that I found incredibly good, it's so dry and heavy, so I apologise in advance, but it's called Capitalism in the 21st Century by Thomas Piketty. Fantastic book. Just think it's well worth reading for everyone. Another one, which is a much easier read and has a really good rhythm to the story, is Winners Take All, which does actually cover these billionaires and philanthropists. And I think that's a really important book for everyone. And there's also a couple of podcasts. So, you know, the Radio Lab podcast, they did a wonderful, beautiful episode recently called Octo Mum. So if you need to be inspired by nature, by an octopus um, outside of the Netflix documentary, this was oh, a yes, okay. beautiful, beautiful episode on the gestation period of an octopus in the deep sea. That's a lovely, inspiring one. Thank you very much, Liz, for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Karen Crossan for the editing and Alicia Van Ziel for the transcript of this episode. 
I want to thank them also for joining this little endeavor, their support, their ideas, their encouragement to keep going too. Although a very disrupted year at many levels, 2020 has been a rich year for GoSimon, rich in encounters, learnings and inspirations from 16 incredible women. I invite you to share these episodes around you as we hope their voices can be heard more largely. We are taking a small break to recharge batteries, but we will be shuffed to be there in the new year with new interviews, new stories of women who keep pushing for positive, sustainable change. See you soon.